Hey guys, Jake here with Digital Wildcatters. Want to let you know about some of the big events that we have coming up. Uh, first up, we got Energy Tech Night, February 16th, here in the Houston Heights Theater. Uh, if you've never been to one of the Energy Tech Nights, you really don't know what you're missing. We have a handful of companies that will be presenting their tech live on the big screen, followed by live Q&A. We'll have tons of good food, drinks, and good people, and it's always a great time, so be sure to check that out. Uh, Bitcoin mining. It's all the rage these days, so we're looking to bring Bitcoin mining to the energy capital of the world with our Empower Energizing Bitcoin Conference, March 30th and 31st here in Houston. Uh, we're bringing together energy, mining, finance, other professionals in the city that powers the world. We're shutting down the streets in Houston for an iconic two-day event at 8th Wonder Brewery where you get to learn and network with energy producers, capital groups, miners, and other builders in space. If you want to join us at Energy Tech Night or at Empower, you can go snag some tickets at digitalwildcatters.com. This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another week of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. This week, got my guy, Matt Flanagan, CEO over at Maze Environmental, down from Bryan, Texas, home of the Aggies. How you doing, Matt? Happy National Signing Day. Yeah. <laughs> Said he's got the uh, text alerts to all the uh, 18-year-old commits. Uh, he's trying to snoop and see who's uh, committing to uh, the Aggies, so... You guys got anyone good today? We've got several good ones this morning. We're hoping the afternoon gets us a few more of the five-star class guys. We're, um, we're knocking on the door to maybe have the number one class nice. in the country, which I guess anytime you're, you're fighting with Alabamas and Georgias of the world for these kids, it, um, just being in that conversation is, I think, good for us. But we want to close them out. And yeah. You get a few more classes like that. Now we're, you know, now we're a little more competitive when it comes to the, the SEC. and. Yeah. National title aspirations. Yeah, so. recruiting becomes brutal when you're competing with SEC, right? But being able to be in Texas and have access to that talent pool. You can have a 9 or $10 million a year coach, but you got to have, they say, the Jimmys and the Joes to <laughs> line up and win. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about Maze um, and what, what you guys are as a company, and then we can just dive into it. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, well, Maze Environmental is uh, we're a startup company based out of Round Mountain, Texas. Uh, as I was telling you, off 281, our, our, our fabrication yeah, where, shop. Where is Round Mountain for anyone? Just south of Marble know. Falls, Texas, out west know. of Austin, out near Horseshoe Bay Resort in that area. And that's a really nice part of the state. Um, we're actually an offshoot of a, a family of companies that's been active in the Permian for about 20 years. So our pedigree is uh, oil field equipment, fabrication, design, engineering, uh, we got into full production facility builds uh, a couple of years ago, uh, primarily in the Permian. And then we've got a fairly active field services group that does a lot of roust about just crew work out in the field. So those guys have been busy in South Texas. We just picked up a client in Haynesville recently. So, yeah. you know, those guys are staying busy. But Maze's offering is a is a process whereby we, you know, as I've listened to a few of you guys' podcasts, that there's obviously a lot of startup activity and money flowing into methane abatement and emissions monitoring, emissions management, um, we do that. So we eliminate flaring through a process that whereby we also are able to uh, swell the oil 
for an operator. So we oh, get cool. we recover more of the 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 liquids part of the gas stream that normally would get flared off either at your tank battery or through a flare. Yeah. We're helping them recover that. Um so we're seeing swell rates of anywhere from three to five percent. Okay. In the year and a half that we've been in the Permian piloting the the process. Yeah. Um so obviously the, the domestic guys are telling us that they love the fact that we're swelling the oil and putting more money in the bank for them. And then oh by the way, we eliminate flaring within a few hours of of turning on the units. Yeah. I mean, so this a, has always been a talking point for me when talking uh, with people that are environmentalists. It's like, hey, look, well, the gas companies don't want to flare gas. I mean, that's their product. You know, they're yep. literally wasting their product. They want to recover as much as the, of that as they can. So why don't you break that down? Everything that you just said, why don't you break that down in more simple terms for someone that may not be familiar with oil and gas? Like even you're using terms that I'm not familiar with, you know, like swell. Like why don't we like, like, break down what's the actual problem in layman's terms, and then we can get into the solution. That, Someone that's an engineer is going to understand what you're talking about 100%. shouldn't be hard for me to do because I'm not a, I'm not a production engineer. <laughs> I've, been in, I've been in the oil business for my entire career, but I'm not a production engineer. Um, you understand a bit of the chemistry, but the mechanical part of it is not my, not my thing. Yeah. Um, so for the, the, I would say the vast majority of, and so we target onshore production. So yeah. we, we haven't yet, adapted the technology for an offshore, um, an offshore environment or just straight up natural gas production. Yeah. So we're going after the crude, the liquids, uh, producers, um, in general, their process, unless they, and so anytime you're producing oil, you have gas associated with it that comes up out of the ground. Yeah. So when you pump water in, you've got oil, you've got gas and you've got water all in that stream. There's equipment today to strip off the water and get you more oil. But if they can't handle all that gas, that when it goes into the tank, you get a buildup of vapor pressure in your tanks before it goes off onto a truck or into a pipeline and, and off to market. And so companies have to put in equipment, typically called vapor recovery units or vapor recovery towers, where they're trying to recover some of that pressure back in, recover some of the oil. But generally, the excess gas in that stream has to get flared, has to go somewhere because they've got no place else to put it. Uh, so you'll run into, so think of it as, what we do is a, uh, you take a can of Coke, Coca-Cola, and you, you pop it open, you'll hear that fizz. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's a very much similar dynamic to what you typically see with a, an oil and gas operator in their, in their tank battery or their tanks, is that they'll have that pressure embedded in the tanks, and it becomes a, potentially an operational issue, and they've got to monitor that pressure and be able to flare off, which is where emissions come from and flaring comes from. We, in essence, the raw process, the oil that goes into those tanks is flat. So it's like you left that can of Coke sitting on a desk for a few hours. The fizz is gone. That's how we leave the oil in the tank is effectively it's flat. So there's very little vapor pressure in that tank, which makes it safer operationally. But upstream of that, because of the way we commingle the gas and the crude, we can strip more of the liquid out of that process in, in terms of generating more oil. So it makes the oil lighter. Mm -hmm. If it's a heavier, you know, medium grade crude, whatever, we can make it a little lighter there still is gas production, but it doesn't become to a point where they have to flare it. Yeah. So, you know, essentially you have uh, different types of gas, you know, you have wet gas, dry right. gas. And, um, you know, for someone that may be familiar with the process, you know, you can strip out your liquids of that gas. And essentially you guys have technology to recover more, uh, more of those liquids out of that, correct? Right, right. So there is less... One byproduct of our process is there is less natural gas. The, the wet gas that's remaining, there's less of that produced. Yeah. 
and as you said, there is value in that. So we're not trying to just eliminate that. Yeah. Because there is there is value in that. And we, you know, we do have clients that have um operational means to dispose of that or get it to a market. So yeah. it does have value. Yeah. What we're trying to target on is helping that oil producer recover more of the higher valued oil and eliminate that emissions problem on the back end as well. Yeah. How does the uh so explain to me like how does the technology actually work? What does it look like? Explain to me what it actually is. Um, it, it's, it's going to be familiar equipment to anybody that's in the, in the space. So it's, you know, it's, and we're long in tooth in terms of fabricating separators and three phase separators. And, uh, so in essence, it's a stabilizer tower okay. that has some unique characteristics that we do have patents in, in process for, um, inside the stabilizers. It, but there's also a, a, an engineering component to this and that we're not just straight up selling or in our case, leasing these stabilizers and you pick a size and drop it into your facility. We want to make sure we've kind of lined it out with the rest of the production operation, the well sizing, the the flow lines, um, as well as there's some pump configuration to do that are part of that. That's part of that crazy process. Is like how many variables go into a pad, right? I mean, all the way down from the well board to, hey, what casing size, you know, what strings of casing do you have in there to, you know, what size of pipe are you going to put in the surface, what tanks. I mean, it's all interconnected, right? And, Anyone that's outside looking in, be like, "Oh yeah, you know, you get a tank battery, and that could probably be fitted to any any pad." But it really depends on every single variable from the to the surface facility. Yeah, and our so our our, our founder and um, CEO Brooks Pierce, who's been in been in the Permian for for decades, you know, he'll tell you that he got his MBA in the oil field, and what he began to recognize through all of his, you know, operating experience as well as um, you know, engineering consulting that he does on the side, you know, previous to this is that everybody's trying to do the same thing, right? They're trying to pull stuff, liquids out of the ground, get it, do it as cost effectively as they can. They're all using generally the same equipment. It comes from different suppliers and all that, but it's generally the same stuff. Yeah. But they make it overly complex in terms of how they engineer it in terms of what they're trying to do. So a lot of what he got into was helping them optimize. And we still do this today. We may, we may design, engineer, and fabricate you know, a set of vessels or equipment or a tank farm or a full production facility. And we don't just drop it in. We want to work collaboratively with the, with the facility engineers that are clients to say, you know, we can help you better optimize this and get you some better use of your, your CapEx and your OpEx dollars and achieve all the things you want to do in terms of maximizing production, you know, taking flaring and emissions out of the equation to the extent we can help you do that. Um, so it becomes much more of a, you know, an, an innovation engineering exercises as opposed to just, all right, we're going to build this and we need to buy from the lowest cost provider of, you know, of whatever, of, of equipment or services, whatever that sort of thing is. So it's been, it's been interesting from that standpoint to see how receptive the market's been to it. Yeah. Um, you guys said, so the shop is kind of in central, central Texas outside of Austin. I'm sure the shop was placed there because it's a nice place of Texas. It's a good place <laughs> to hang out. Huh? Um, so when you guys do a lot of work in the Permian, it sounds like y'all got a client in Hainesville. You just made a comment about the market's reception to it. I mean, let's talk about that a little bit because I always like hearing, you know, about uh, market reception um, to new ideas, new equipment. I mean, how long have you guys been pushing pushing this technology, this product, um, up up to the state? Well, I so I started um, with Maze in the spring. Um, we had. I'd say seven or eight units in in the Permian kind of operating where we were kind of lining things out, tuning it, 
um, understanding the process a little better mm-hmm. and obviously collecting data on terms of, so we, we saw immediate benefits on the flaring and the emission side of things and we yeah. could measure that value, but really kind of seeing from an engineering standpoint, what kind of swell could we achieve with certain configurations? Um, we really didn't start pushing it into the market until I would say May, um, April, May, June timeframe in yeah. there. And, and the way we're looking at the market is we, we know that there's a domestic U.S. onshore market, uh, especially when in states where we, where we operate in New Mexico and in Colorado, where now there's state mandates for emissions and the, you know, the planes, EPA planes are flying overhead. And if you exceed a certain rate, they're shutting you in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been out there and I've been standing next to COOs and they're nervous as you can imagine when the planes are flying overhead. The sky's watching now. <laughs> the environmentalists are driving by on the state highways, taking and posting stuff on Facebook. Um, they're keenly aware of just the, the, you know, the media presence and the, the pressure that they're going to get that way. Yeah. Um, you know, in Texas, obviously, it's not, there's no mandate. Uh, their f- management teams are far more concerned about production and cash flow and profitability. Yeah. If they get the side benefit of, of an emissions reduction and they can stand in front of their shareholders um, or private equity backers who may or may not be yeah, in, under that I just pressure. don't think that's going to be the case moving right. forward. You know, I'm talking to a lot of operators and people are thinking about this and being very proactive about it. I don't know if you saw diversified oil and gas get drugged through the media uh, last month for all of their methane emissions, but no one wants to have their company name all over national and world news for methane emissions. And, you know, people are watching environmental defense funds, you know, flying drones and planes over, like you said, and um, documenting these plumes of methane. And uh, so well, they're, I, not, they're, they're not only calling out companies, but they're, they're in some cases going after individual named management team members. Yeah. Um, and I know we've talked to some, some of the, the active private equity folks in this space and they know that they're now getting dragged through it. Some of the banks are getting dragged in into the mud uh, as well if, if they've made an investment because they've, you know, the larger banks have stepped up and said, we want to be net zero and we're only going to fund, you know, companies that are helping to assist with the energy transition or net zero. Yeah. But on the other side of the docket, they've got money in funding oil and gas, funding oil and gas, yeah. and now they're becoming bad operators. Yeah, it's a- and I don't even you know. I, I think that there's this paradigm shift happening too, where it's not just oh, we're going to do it because of social pressure. Like there's, I mean, companies want to be good stewards of of the world, right? And so they're saying, hey, look, we're going to do what's right. Um, but also, like, hey, we have methane leaking off, or you know, we're losing product too. So. It's a win-win for everyone to focus on, hey, how can we drive down uh, flaring and rogue emissions and actually capture carbon? Yeah, and that, so you, you talked about the market. Um, that's a key part. The, the second one being the the majors. And and obviously they're in various states of either aggressively moving to an ener- on an energy transition path uh, where they're actively divesting the shell, divesting their Permian assets, for example. Um, Whereas the Chevrons and, and Exxon are still going to be very active and may potentially grow their portfolios in, in a domestic onshore because they know that they've got some run. Um, and so that's a key market for us. And we've seen some some near-term traction. Mm-hmm. They're very interested in what we're doing. Um, there's obviously some big technical and engineering conversations you need to have to check all the boxes. Yeah. Uh, and then the third component, which has really been the most surprising for us, is the international markets and the, and the national oil companies um, that in some cases have, have, have cold called us once they find out. And we've, we've done a fair amount of marketing 
Yeah. Um, and they've heard about us either through conferences or events or just, you know, uh, the media platforms we've gone through. And they call us and say, we need to understand what you guys are doing and how can we leverage you into, you know, into our plans and our development plans. And, and when we started this back in, in kind of in April, May, we thought that if we can get the domestic U.S. market going and we have them standing as seen as innovators, that would then allow us to get more traction in the majors and then the international markets. We're actually starting to see the majors in the international markets be far more aggressive in terms of adopting. Um, and I know they've got a, a variety of arms, whether they've got an internal venture arm or they've got um, in the case of Chevron, at the, at the World Petroleum Congress last week, their new leader of their new energy uh, transition group, they're actively investing, um, yeah. not just buying and acquiring and implementing, but investing in companies that will help them get to where they want to be from a net zero, yeah, uh, um, you know, energy transition standpoint. So we're, you know, we're 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 growing. Um, we'd obviously, as you know. Um, Anybody in the business development world, we want to go faster. We want the market to go faster. Nothing, um, nothing ever grows <laughs> as fast as you want it to grow. <laughs> but, you know, so in our, and so part of um, you know, going back to our business model and that we are we're differentiated in that we're vertically integrated. So we can do design engineering, but we also fabricate. So we source, we can fabricate, design, implement, service on the back end. Um, and so working through that model in international markets, right? We're not going to be able to just jump in and start fabricating anywhere around the world. Yeah. We're not going to want to fabricate in central Texas and then export and ship it around. So that's, that's yeah. been part of the fun too, is working through some of our potential partnership opportunities in, in some of these regions around the country and around the world that could help us really help, help scale what we're doing. Yeah. When I worked for InVenture, you know, manufactured, our pipe was manufactured in Conroe and then it came down to uh, the shop in Katy and then we shipped that pipe all over the world and it's difficult when you're shipping from one central location and you're shipping all across the world. You know, it's not, it's not cheap to ship equipment, right? So that becomes a problem. Um, but it's really interesting because, you know, on this show, we have a wide uh, array of companies that come on from digital startups to physical products and I don't know if we've had anyone on the show yet that was vertically integrated to where they actually own the fab shop and you know they're producing uh, the product. Um, so that's really interesting. Let's talk about. I know you said the company uh, was it was kind of an offshoot or spun out, and you brought up the co-founder CEO. You know how did how was the company started in terms of you know I just think of this business high capex right you got ton of uh capital that has to go into equipment to even build build the product and then you got to be able to have some float to do some units and get them out in the field and get them piloted and those things um was that was that funded by the previous uh, company that was spun out of or how was kind of that genesis this episode is brought to you by our friends at combo curve if you haven't heard aries and phd went around and combo curve is in combo curve is the cloud-based operating system for energy companies. The single integrated platform helps your engineering teams become more agile, precise, and efficient than ever before. For the first time ever, you now generate type curves and forecast thousands of wells accurately and in a fraction of the time. Oh, and it can automatically run these forecasts every single day. What I love most about the Combo Curve team is their work ethic and actually caring about their customers. Every time I talk to the team, Armand, Jeremy, everybody else over there, they're reinvesting into growing the development team to tackle any challenges that their clients may be facing. 
But don't take my word for it. Go over to combocurve.com, read the dozens of testimonials on their website from clients like Arm Energy, Laredo Petroleum, Rock and W Minerals, and many more. Request a demo, and these guys will get you taken care of. Well, I'd say structurally, we're 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 independent but arm's length companies, all under the under an umbrella. Um, call it a holding company, for lack of a yeah. better term. Yeah. Um, so we have arm's length relationships. So at Mays, we, if it makes sense for us to get our stabilizer and associated equipment that we need for our solution from our legacy fabrication business. We have the option to do that. We can do it, but we also are exploring other fabrication options. And we've had a, a number of those conversations over the last six months. Yeah. Not only in the U S but, um, you know, the guys that have access to the, say the port of Houston, right. That can get us quickly into an export market. If we need it, they can, they can give us scale where we don't necessarily have that today. Mm -hmm. Um, certainly in an international market, but it does give us the ability to have, um, and, and I'm a technology guy. My, my career has been primarily in technology. I've been in energy and oil and gas my whole career, but getting to know more about the engineering side of this. I haven't known that a bit. Like, what's um, your background? Like, is it, <laughs> is it all technology around energy or is it? Uh, um, yeah. I, well, I started my career almost 30 years ago now with um, uh, what was Anderson Consulting is now Accenture. Yeah. And was in their energy practice um, doing a range of technology related projects. I was, I was more of a, um, did a lot in midstream and downstream. So I was in okay. refineries and working with pipeline companies on SCADA implementations, uh, scheduling tools, did some leak detection technology work. Um, somewhat atypical at the time for what, what Anderson was doing, which was a lot of SAP and ERP work. Um, but then I got into a chance to go to Asia and uh, worked on the IPO for some of the Chinese national oil companies you know, writing business strategies and business plans and, you know, five-year, 10-year roadmaps and IT master plans. So it kind of got me branched out doing some some different things. It's been primarily, you know, uh, both in consulting and then in operating roles is primarily in the technology kind of IT capacity. Um, I have had the chance to work with a lot of private equity-backed startups in my career, which is where the Maze opportunity came in because the our financial advisor knew of me Mm -hmm. and called me up and said, hey, we need some help. Um, the owner, when I met with him, he said, yeah, he's a incredibly gifted engineer, um, which is where he wants to play, right? I want, him, I want him in the market. I want him in front of clients, prospective clients, and I want him creating new solutions for the market, which is what he loves to do. He doesn't like dealing with all the administrative stuff of starting up and running a company and dealing with <laughs> things like payroll and insurance yeah. and master service agreements and all those sorts of things. Um, but being able to right size what what Mays needs when it needs it, right? So you know yeah. we we've, we've got so your question on the financing side is that the the backbone of the financing for Mays comes from the legacy fabrication and field services business. Yeah. So that balance sheet is what we're using to then finance because our Mays model is to lease the equipment. We're not selling it. Yeah. And so basically, we get some financing to prefabricate, and then we put them out in the market, get the rental income. And then that we kind of pay that off and we get kind of that revolving business going that we can scale off of. And then the rental business gives us and our clients the option to be flexible with what they do with the equipment, right? And we know that there's a, a fairly good, once a well comes on, there's going to be a fairly rapid decline in production. Whatever the life of that well is, they may want to move that to a different location. This way gives them some flexibility to, you know, to do that. Okay. So let's talk about that a little quick, uh, real quick. So the model is you're leasing the equipment out. Um, 
clients don't have to buy the equipment outright. How um how do you guys I mean do you just charge on a per per monthly basis or how does that work? Um it's 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 really going to be tied into and, and we've had these discussions internally as well as is the when you're when you're fat designing and fabricating straight up equipment and you're selling it, it becomes a cost plus model, which is just how much of a markup are you going to slap on top of it, depending on market conditions. Mm-hmm. In a rental model, we want to be pricing it on value, so that's where it comes in. That if if you know with our test clients, you know we had one we had sized it for about eight thousand barrels a day. Well, they went through a period over two weeks where they doubled that. Didn't know it was coming. Um, and so we had to kind of rework some of our sizing and engineering on the side of that. So if, so if we're, if we're seeing a, you know, with that three to 5% swell, give or take and the value that we're creating with that, I'm not saying we should be capturing all that ourselves, but we ought to be pricing it in a way where we're, we're, we're getting recognized as a premium provider because we're not just abating the flaring and the emissions. We're giving them some revenue and margin uplift. We're capturing that, right? Yeah, so that's actually, so it's not a one size fits all kind yeah. of thing where you go to our catalog and say I need a yeah you don't have I a, need the fifteen thousand barrel they, version yeah. when can you get it here? Um, I'm a nerd for business models, so that's why I like asking uh, these questions, and so that's pretty interesting. You know, um, it's kind of the same thing here at Wildcatters. You know, like when someone comes to us and is like, hey, we want to advertise on podcasts or on uh, events, like we don't have a menu of pricing. Like we look and we say, hey, you know, what's your problem? how can we tailor a solution that helps you solve that problem? You know, it's not just, not just something we pick up off the shelf and a lot of work goes into it. So, um, it's kind of interesting to look at it of, Hey, if you guys are going to be able to capture X amount of value and we can take, you know, a point or two off of that, whatever it may be. Um, that's a really interesting way to look at, um, charging for, for the equipment. Yeah. And it, it's also, um, and I think our, our group has learned too that it's a um, it's very much a consultative process on the front end, which is we're not because we, we've had we've had some operators call and say, "What's one of these? Can I get? I, I just need a price." And we're like, "Well, we're not going to get. We can't give you a price because it all depends on your your your. We need plot plans, your production rates, where, where all this stuff sits, how much extra piping you're going to need, pump sizing, all that sort of stuff." But it really, that's where we start to unlock some additional value for our, for our clients outside of just the, the, the process and the technology that we're fabricating and implementing is that we've shown that we can help them, their facility guys kind of rework some stuff and save some, pull some equipment out. Yeah. Right? And so that's, that's a, that's another realized saving that may not be directly tripled. It's to so our, funny how much your pitch sounds like digital right? wildcatters because we're very much <laughs> a consultative service. Team. Right? Like we'll sit down with marketing teams and I mean, sometimes we'll sit down with them for hours and. You know, maybe they don't end up doing anything with us, but we sit there and like help them think through, you know, their material and their messaging, their strategy. Sometimes they they find answers that may not even be relative to what they're looking to do with us. But yeah, I think that there's a lot of value in that alone. One shows that you you care, right? And I'm a big believer in call it old school, but just cliche customer service. Like you sit down and try to understand someone's problems and what they're really trying to achieve and help provide value along the way wherever you can. Oh, absolutely. And I think we, you know, we've, um, I think we've, we've, we've got an engineering group. We've, we've brought in some fairly senior guys in the last couple of months that have really kind of helped us up our game in that space. And they've, they've been at the, 
with the XTOs and the Devons and the Apaches. And they, they, I call it, you have to know what good looks like before you go into the market pitching something. Yeah. Um, because you'll get, all it takes is one, one bad message or one failed, you know, client engagement or one, one failed pissed off customer and we're dead in the water. Yeah. And especially when you're in the, in an early stage, you know, uh, hopefully rapid growth pattern that we're in, you know, the model I've used with my guys is that, I mean, there's a, there's a balancing act between how much giveaway you give on the front end. Right. So if you go in and you're having all these, you're spending hours and days out in, in the Delaware and you're consulting with guys that are younger than you don't know what good looks like, we ought to be capturing some of that value where we can, right? Mm -hmm. Cause they could very well just, if you give them the answer, then they take that and think they can go implement it themselves or go source it from a cheaper provider. Yeah. We've just given away value. Yeah. Um, so kind of educating our guys on how to do that on the front end. Yeah. And so understanding, but it's all about that, you know, the, the first moment, um, and I learned this in the world of technology consulting is as soon as you start setting expectations and you've got to live up to it, all it takes is one bad one where you haven't done it and your, your name and your reputation, reputation is tarnished. Yeah. You don't recover from that. <laughs> yeah. And so I, you know, I've said, we've got to be very careful about our, you know, our early, you know, our early adopters with this technology, we have to do everything we can to make it successful. And we need them standing on the mountaintop to the rest of the market saying, this stuff from Maze works. These guys are great to work with. They've, they've lived up to everything. They've, they've done everything they can to make it work for us. And we're seeing real tangible value, you know, out of what they've offered us. And that's yeah. what we need. So, um, so I got a question for you because you're kind of in a unique position and, you know, we have a lot of engineers that listen to the show and, you know, maybe uh, they have an idea that they want to go pursue. But, you know, I've uh, ran into a lot of engineers in this industry that they have an idea and create a company around it. Smart as can be, but, you know, they don't want to do the commercial stuff in the business. You know, they don't want to go sell or handle payroll or any of those <laughs> things. And, uh, you know, which is fair, like they should play into their strengths, which is designing good products and you know, really putting uh, time and effort into that. Um, so I call guys like you commercial guys. Like I tell these engineers, like, hey, you need, you need some commercial people, some people that know how to set up systems, go sell, and, um, you know, go market and those types of things. You know, do you have, um, you know, I, I don't know if it's advice or you know, things that you've seen throughout your career, um, working with tech companies and engineers like that, you know, if someone's an engineer and they want to build a team around a product, you know, do you have any advice or insight from your experiences? Yeah. And I, I, um, I think I've learned, I think humility goes a long way in understanding where your blind spots are mm -hmm. and where your weaknesses are. Um, I, I was actually, I was listening last week to, um, your your session with uh with jeremy funk and oh, yeah. i've known jeremy for a few years now and oh, okay. I've, I've been trying to get jeremy in on on a couple of these startups that i'm working with because yeah. he's <laughs> he he has his gift he has what he's good at yeah. and it's it's um it's it's a compelling offering and so it's, it's similar to the conversation i had with with um with brooks and amber pierce when they called me up as i, I sat down and they they asked me i said well you you're starting today. It was a Friday afternoon and I drove out and met with them for a few hours in the shop. And I said, well, I still don't know which it is you want me to do. Um, talk to me about the company and where we're going and they're excited about the growth. And I had no line of sight into this, the, the legacy companies mm -hmm. and they weren't, they didn't, they thought that 
Brooks's words were, this thing runs itself. Well, it doesn't. Um, as I came to learn fairly quickly when I, when I stepped in. Um, so what I would say to, you know, to a, a budding engineer that wants to innovate, um, incubate a company is find those one or two people that help you fill in your blind spots that you can, that you can trust. Um, and they're hard to find, but you have to, which I think goes back to, you know, the, the, the quality and the extent of your personal and professional network and finding if, if there's not, if there's someone that you do trust, the former mentor, a former boss, the former colleague, just test the, I don't have to give away the IP and say, I'm thinking about doing something in this line, in this line, and I need some help around how to start up a company or how to get, how do I go raise money or how do I do this? You know, ask your network and eventually you'll find, I think quickly someone that will step in and help you. Yeah. But then it's got to be a, obviously a high degree of trust at that point, because you're probably not going to have worked with each other. And, you know, once you get into understanding what the uh, IP is, and that's the same thing I did with Brooks. I said, part of my job is I'm going to, I'm going to protect you from yourself, which means I've got an employment agreement, not that I would take, but we've got to protect you so that your IP that's up here doesn't walk out the door when someone has a bad day at the shop or the office and takes this and walks and tries to go do it themselves. Yeah. Because in this world, I mean, the IP is every, the value of the company is in the IP. Yeah. Um, and we're going to have to be prepared to defend it. Yeah. Uh, you know, if and when those situations arise. So I think that's where, if you're an engineer, you got an idea, I would say first thing you do is put it on a piece of paper and go spend a little bit of money with a patent attorney, if it's patentable, and just get it in the process. So now you've got some protection. Um, and then when you get some people that you want to bring in to help you with either financing or a fundraise or um, additional engineering capacity or, you know, whatever you need from a back office sales, business development, there's easy ways to protect yourself, but you're going to have to build that kind of network around how to do that. Um, and I know with what, certainly with what you guys are doing here with Digital Wildcatters and the building next door, I mean, there's enough incubation avenues a lot today. Of, a lot of resources um, around today. And yeah. it, it's not all about, well, tell me what you're doing and I want 10% of the company to help you. It, it's there. There's a lot more folks out there that are willing to do it. Some cases for free, just because that they want to do the right thing and help people get companies started. There's, especially in oil and gas, oh, yeah. especially in oil and gas, there's people that just want to help and so much uh, collaborative effort. And I see it all the time. It blows my mind when people offer to out of digital wildcatters for free. I'm like, okay, we're at a point in our company where I don't feel comfortable doing that. If you would have hit me up three years ago, I would have taken you up on it. But, um, you know, I think your point of really relying and leaning in on your personal network, um, is something I tell everyone all the time is even if you're at, you know, if you're at a corporate job, you should be networking because you never know that person that you met at lunch on a Tuesday in 2019, five years from now, you know, you could be business partners. Sure, he could be helping you as a CFO or a CEO, helping you commercialize an idea. And it's funny, like I can go back and people that I have in digital wildcatters, I can go map back, you know, when I met them back in 2017. And it's kind of, um, I never knew four years ago we'd be working together. Um, so I think that's really important. Also, like you said, humility, understanding your blind spots. That's, I think, the biggest thing that a founder or entrepreneur can know. Um, I know what my weak spots are. I know what I'm good at, but more importantly, I know what I'm bad at. You go find people to fill in the spots that you're bad. Um, it's kind of sounds like, you know, you come in here and help and say, Hey, look, 
I'm going to take care of commercializing this company. You guys make good product and come up with good ideas. And I think any good successful entrepreneurs will tell you that same. That's like the most important. Yeah. And I, I, there was, there was a, um, someone I met a few years back that turned me on to a book. It's, uh, and I, f- I forget the, the, the name of the guy, but he's a senior engineer from Google and one of their original engineers. And he wrote a book called the right it. Okay. And it talks about, so it's an, you think it's another book about why startups fail and, and why entrepreneurs don't make it like have made 90 plus percent of companies don't ever make it. And his, his, um, and I, I found it very timely for where, where I, where I am and where I was, was it, it's not failure to execute. It's not because you don't have money. It's don't have smart people. It's because you never test the, the, the idea. You get it out of the idea phase into is someone willing to pay you for what it is you think you have? And it's getting it beyond, um, you know, I, I come up with an idea and I, I talk to 20 people that I know in my immediate network and all 20 go, oh yeah, that's great. You should do that. Then you take it to the next level of the conversation and say, well, if I built that, would you pay, what, would you pay me for it? And how much would you pay me yeah. for it? And they'll say, yeah, I'd probably pay you for that. And then he talks about a concept of, uh, people often talk, especially in technology, about prototyping. Yeah. Build a prototype before you go spend a bunch of money building the full answer. He actually talks about prototyping, which is if you have to use a cardboard box and some markers to mock up your business idea and go stand in front of a potential customer and see, will they, will they actually give you a dollar on the spot? Now you've collected real data about your market potential before you've ever spent a nickel on building anything out. And actually, and that's where most startups fail is that, and, and I've met a lot of guys in the last few years that, that went out and raised millions of dollars thinking they had the next thing, couldn't sell it. And it wasn't because they had bad salespeople. Most, just companies, didn't have, most know, companies fail before they find product right. market fit. Like that's the most crucial stage of a company. Finding product market fit, but you said, "Hey, people tell you you're gonna. Are they actually gonna? Are they actually gonna buy it?" And once you get to that, okay, now you can figure out how to grow, scale. But most companies get to the stage of finding a product fit, which is where I'm. Fit. I'm. Um, I, I I preach it every day at Maze is that look, guys, we know we have something here. We know we have something special, but we've got to get to a point where we have people that are actually paying us for this, which mm-hmm. which we do. And we need them advocating for us in the marketplace. And then we get more people paying for it. And that's, that's when we know we've got something. Then, then we worry about the other things like scale and channel partners and all that other JVs. We'll figure <laughs> yeah. all that out. But until you've actually got people paying you and you've got money coming in, it's, it's, you don't have a business. You, got, yeah. you still have an idea. Yeah. <clears throat> Love it. So if someone's listening today, you know, we got production engineers that are listening and um, they're looking for solutions. Where can they find Maze? Um, assuming you guys have a website, what's the URL? What's on LinkedIn? Give us all the info. Yep, we're at uh, mazeenvironmental.com. Um, we're on LinkedIn. We're on Facebook. All right. Um, Twitter, doing all the social the social channels. Cool. Um, we did a fairly good blitz on our website. We've got some um, high end video production and some news articles that we've done in. Um, oh, nice. We did one in uh, Brooks. Did one in um, New Mexico. We've got some stuff with the Albuquerque Sun, um, obviously a few in the Permian, Midland, Houston, Dallas, periodicals that are out there, some videos out there that he just talks about it. Um, cool. he, he said he's not a TV video guy, and when I first saw it, even the even the B-roll, I said, you're actually pretty good at this. <laughs> so we need, to, we need to do more of this. Um, 
He said you for the podcast. Hey, he said, I don't, I don't want to no, be on, no. on Well, I actually, invi- I actually invited him, but he's, he's up in the middle and doing, 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 the, doing God's work. He's working. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, guys, if you want to check this out, uh, go to May's website. We'll leave a link uh, for it down in the show notes. Um, sounds like they got some uh, good content over there to check it out and see what it's actually about. Got some videos and uh, news articles and things of that nature. Um, if you want to hear more about it, reach out to our guy, Matt. Hey, appreciate you coming on the show today and making it down from uh, – uh, Brian, we'll let you get back to your uh, your uh, recruit, <laughs> your recruiting uh, support for. Uh, I'll wait to the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, see where the where, what, what kind of carnage it is at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. So, guys, if you haven't signed up for uh, the Big Digital Energy newsletter, make sure to do that on our website. Um, also, keep your eyes open. We got we are about to come out with our 2022 events calendar, and we have some big time events. We're talking about some two three day mega events about to uh, do some really cool stuff in the energy space. So make sure you check out our website for that. Should be going live with that in the next couple of weeks. Catch you guys on the next episode.